0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the big program. My name is David Stutter. This is Things My Granddaddy Said. We've got a granddaddy exclusive for you, everybody. I can't imagine how we were able to snag this, and you won't be able to imagine it either. We're going to go live right now to the beautiful tropical island of Cuba where our president is vacationing, negotiating, lounging, and making inroads with Fidel and Raul. We're going live via satellite or something to check in on him right now hey, hello mr president can you hear me are you there sir oh my oh oh well it seems we've interrupted something like a party, they doesn't it? Oh my, Pete. wait, what? I'm the king of the rumba beat. Indeed. When I play the maracas, I go chick-chicky-boom, chick-chicky-boom. Yes, sir, I'm Cuban feet. I'm the craze of my nature street. Oh my. When I start to dance, everything goes chick-chicky-boom, <laughs> chick-chicky-boom. <laughs> I'm sure it does. The señoritas, they singing and how they swing with their Yes. The yes. It's yes. very nice. Oh. So full of <laughs> And when they're dancing, they bring a happy ring that I can. A drink, take a lesson from human feet, and I'll teach you to chick-chickie-boom, chick-chickie-boom, chick-chickie-boom He's
1: a really modest guy, oh, oh well he's the hottest guy
0: in Havana And who am I speaking to now? Huh? Certainly doesn't sound like hey, Michelle Senorita, I know that you would like a chick-y-boom chick It's very nice
1: So full of spice
0: well, apparently, we're going to something extremely important down there on the uh, tropical paradise island of Cuba. We'll have to ch- we'll have to check in later with the uh, with the Obamas as they seem to be cavorting about uh, with Raúl and Fidel and the rest of the uh, the rest of the Cuban folks down there. All right, you know, we kid around, but here's the thing: I, you know, I have long advocated for the opening up of of cuba uh i've been down there i was down in, i was down there in uh <clears throat> i think it was uh 86 maybe 87 i was in guantanamo for uh when i was in the navy for about uh a couple of months uh we were down there for a uh, some refresher training and we were supposed to be down there for about two weeks and as it turns out we uh, had some problems with the boat and ended up having to stay down there for uh, nearly three months and it was um you know you're restricted to the to the base area there and when you can get off the ship and uh of what i saw uh was just sort of the military base there i didn't get out and obviously out uh off the base because namely there's uh concertina wire and uh machine guns to prohibit them from coming in and us from going over so that posed a problem uh but at any rate um I mean, obviously, Cuba, is a, it's a beautiful country. It's, it's a, just a tropical paradise. The, if you've never been down there, you certainly many of you have been near Cuba or into the, into the mid-Caribbean. Uh, uh, beautiful. I mean, the, the water is gin clear, and, and, and it's always temperate and lovely. And, you know, uh, I've, I've always advocated for, for opening uh, Cuba to American tourism, American industry, and American business. Um, You know, I've long held that the cure, and and, you know, here's a fun fact, Um, Cuba was the first and remains uh, the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere, so it's, uh, you know, it's been there for a long time as a uh, sort of a a Cold War relic, sort of like me. Um, You know, it, 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 uh, obviously there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of consternation among certain folks when you start talking about a free and, and democratic Cuba, which is something that has not happened, incidentally, simply because this president has decided to relax America's long-standing 50-year uh, political posture relevant to Cuba, the embargo the and everything else that has gone with that. Simply because this president has allowed or has decided to relax that certainly does not mean that Cuba is uh, all of a sudden uh, released its dissidents, uh, relaxed its political oppression, and um, is going about the business of, of bettering everybody's lives. To the contrary, they certainly are not. Uh, if you go down to Cuba today, and I hope to do that very soon, uh, you'll see, and you, I'm sure you've seen this in in, in television and movies, and it's it's, it's factually represented uh, for the most part. You know, they're riding around in 55 <laughs> Chevrolets, and uh, and believe me, they're not mint condition. Um, the buildings in Cuba, the, for the most part, are run down, dilapidated, now very beautiful, I mean Cuba, you know Havana is a beautiful city, uh, it's old uh, and, and not by design or because uh, of the quaintness of it, it's because they have no economic development happening down there, you know it's interesting, I looked at uh, something online and, and it's got the History Channel logo, so you assume that it's fact checked and, and as historically factual as possible, but here's what a, a little brief um, sort of flash about uh, about Cuba's, uh, Fidel's Cuba. Here's what it says. Cuban leader Fidel Castro, 1926 to present, established the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere after leading an overthrow of the military dictatorship of Batista in 1959. He ruled over Cuba nearly five decades until handing power off to his younger brother Raul in 2008. During that time, and this is the part that cracks me up, Castro's regime was successful in reducing illiteracy stamping out racism, and improving public health care, but was widely criticized for stifling economic and political freedoms, you think? Now, I would challenge you, ladies and gentlemen, to walk into city center Havana, find some just average Cuban uh, fella or lady standing on a street corner and hand them uh, the tourism pamphlet that you have, or even a copy of Dick and Jane and ask them to read from it. I think you'd be um, probably not surprised to find that they may not be able to do that. Cuba you understand you see is not a bastion of literacy by any means because for a communist dictatorship to flourish their people must be ignorant that's that's first because you see they can't be certainly can't be reading and comprehending and understanding what's happening outside the territorial walls of the dictatorship for that would be fatal to the uh, to the control that Fidel has had over his people for the last 50 years uh now certainly people that have been born into that Uh, You know, there's a percentage of people on that island nation that that have never known anything but that, and they've been they've been sort of socialized to accept that and and embrace that. As a matter of fact, and would probably fight to keep it because they don't know any better. Hence, my argument for opening Cuba uh, to American business, industry, and tourism. Because once they get a little taste of that, uh, then you know it's it's just natural. You're not going to stem that tide very easily. And if Cuba is serious about mending relationships with the United States and mending fences with the United States, then certainly they're going to allow American interests to flourish on the island of Cuba. And quite naturally from that will flow a sense of um, interest, obviously, in our way of life, in capitalism and all of the things that capitalism can do for those people down there. Um, And for us, it'll be a mutually beautiful relationship. So, I look forward to when uh, the day when Cuba is finally fully open uh, to all things American. Uh, I'll be the first in line to go down there. But I see something the other day, that Carnival Cruise Lines, everybody, is opening up. Uh, I believe they're going to start setting sail for Cuba. So, it's beginning to happen. Um, it's beginning to happen. Now, look, why am I talking about this? Well, you know, it's not without controversy that President Obama has gone down there. There's this picture of him... Uh, a couple days ago, or yesterday, that, that broke on the internet. It's all over the place of him standing uh, with 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 Raúl. Certainly, I don't believe I don't believe Fidel is there, but he's standing with uh, with Raúl and, and and several other Cuban dignitaries and, and State Department people, and they are uh, in front of a building which has a gigantic sort of etching or or, or outline of the uh, very familiar face of uh, Shea Guevara. Now, as everyone knows or doesn't know, well, some, some of you don't know, some of you run around with this fool's face emblazoned on t-shirts and jeans and every damn thing else. Shea Guevara was a, was a murderer and a terrorist, um, put hundreds if not thousands of, of people to death uh, in his murderous rise to, uh, to power. So that's, uh, that, that's uh, sort of what the dust-up was about um, over the last couple of days. That the president would, would pose for a photo op with this fellow so prominently featured uh, behind him. Um, you know, I wonder what people who, uh, who suffered under, under, uh, under his revolutionary tactics <clears throat> and who escaped and are perhaps living in the United States have to say about that. Interesting. And, you know, just to sort of drill down on that a little bit, for those of you that genuinely don't know who this, this fellow is, um, you know, he, was, he, was, he aided Castro in overthrowing the Batista regime uh, in Cuba. He, ser- he was sort of Castro's strongman. He served as a military advisor to Castro and led the guerrilla troops in battles against the Batista forces. And uh, when Castro took power uh, in 59, Gravera became, uh, he was put in charge of the La Cabana Fortress prison. And at, during that time, it's estimated, and I believe this is a highly conservative estimate, it's estimated that uh, that between 156 and 550 people were executed on Guevara's uh, extrajudicial uh, extrajudicial. I'm sorry, orders during that time. So on his order, upwards of 550 people were, were executed, and uh, uh, not before being uh, tortured, I assure you. And that's probably a conservative estimate. I would put the numbers, and I think I've seen the numbers put much, much higher than that. And then later he became the president of the Cuban na- National Bank, if you can imagine, and helped to shift the uh, country's trade relations from the United States to the Soviet Union. So he was also instrumental in cutting it off with the United States and, and engaging with the Soviets. Uh, three years later, uh, he was appointed to the Ministry of Industry. And uh, he left his post in 65 to export the ideas of the Cuban Revolution to other parts of the world. In other words, he became a mercenary for revolutionaries. Uh, in 66, he began to try to incite the people of Bolivia to rebel against their government, but had little success. And he just had a small guerrilla force to support his efforts, and he was ultimately captured and killed uh, by the Bolivian army in October 1967, and rightfully so. Um, and I doubt he went out <laughs> at the hands of the Bolivian army as auspiciously as Butch Casting and the Sundance Kid did. At least I'd like to think he didn't. But I mean, I get the discontent among certain folks about you know the, the possibility of, of normalizing relations with Cuba. I mean, after all, uh, you know, it was Cuba that allowed the Soviets to, to park 90 plus nuclear warheads uh, off the 90 miles off the coast of, uh, of, of Florida. Um, it was Cuba that many suspect and still believe had a hand in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, so, you know, and here's the thing that, that I remember in my lifetime you know, in 1980, Uh, The Mariel boat lift, uh, 79 and 80, when President Carter agreed to receive uh, a number of Cuban, air quotes here, refugees, when in fact what they turned out to be mixed with the refugees were um, hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, Castro's jail uh, population. I mean, he literally just opened his dungeons and in insane asylums and said, "Be gone!" Put them on boats and sent them to uh, to the uh, to Miami, and uh, that is an absolute fact. And the landscape of Florida was forever changed. The landscape of the United States was forever changed. Uh, we have the proliferation of of illegal narcotics. You can thank and trace directly to the <clears throat> absolute overwhelming influx of cocaine into the miami area in the early 1980s i mean it's well documented one of the best uh documents or documentaries i've ever seen about it is uh, uh an hbo special called the cocaine cowboys if you've never seen that find that and watch it that is a fantastic uh, documentary put on a few years ago but it chronicles the, the boat lift Uh, The impact, just the the boat lift and and delivering that sort of population, and when I say that sort of population, I mean that many people at once into an area that was ill-suited and ill-equipped to deal with it. Couple that with the fact that a large percentage of those people were criminals walking in uh, and uh, went directly to the drug trade. I mean, it just was absolutely overwhelming uh, for Miami and South Florida and, of course, all of that moved north and moved west across the United States out to California. It's very fascinating. It chronicles all of that and all of the players who some, still, or some are still alive today and m- most are dead. But it, it, it talks about all of the, the, the main players uh, in the drug trade at that time, Pablo Escobar and um, Griselda Blanco and, and, and all of those people. It's, it's super, super interesting. And I, I, if you haven't seen it, I would urge you to see it. It is really, really good. So, I mean, th- th- I remember that happening in my lifetime. So there's, there are a lot of things that leave, leave sort of a, a bad taste in people's mouth about Cuba and the Cuban, you know, the Castro regime. But even with all of that, I still say it makes sense to open Cuba, to, ex- uh, to uh, expose those people uh, to what American capitalism and in industry business opportunities, what, what it can do for them if the Cuban people or the Cuban government will let it happen. You know, I, I don't want it to turn into a situation where only, you know, a, a select few, uh, you, know, you know, rich uh, Hollywood type elitists are allowed to go down there and are shown only what they, you know, what the government wants them to see. And, you know, it turns into that kind of a thing. I, I don't want that. I want it opened up just to, just the same as if you wanted to shoot down to Miami for a weekend. You know, you shoot down to, to Cuba. It's, it's so close. I mean, you can. You can literally breach the distance between between Key West and Cuba on, on a you know on a eighteen foot fishing skiff if you want to. Hell, they float up this way on hobbled out fifty seven Chevys and rafts and everything else. So, okay, well that's sort of uh, Cuba's in the news and the, you know Mr. President Obama's down there, and I just wanted to touch on that briefly before we moved on to some other things. Uh, the other big news story, obviously, that has just is still breaking, is the ISIS terrorist attack in Belgium. I mean the headline is a familiar one i mean <clears throat> bombs tore through the main airport of the belgian capital at a subway station in central brussels on tuesday you know it's always sort of the same tactic they're not doing anything new uh it, it's always a suicide bombers followed by uh you know armed men with machine guns that start machine gunning the survivors um but there's all, always and it's also it's always a soft target you know it's a nightclub or a a theater, or or a dance hall, or a subway station, or airport. Um, you know they they open fire at the at the airport uh, in Brussels. Um, it was a coordinated attack, which is again not something that's that's new to the to to this experience. Um, and after the attacks, uh, ISIS uh, of course claimed responsibility immediately. Um, you you know it it just. It, it, it defies, um, well, I don't know if it does that. I mean, it, it's just frustrating that we cannot seem to find a way uh, to put a stop to this. Um, you know, there, there certainly is a way to, to put a stop to this. But the resolve that we showed in the days and months after 9-11 has all but evaporated Regarding this, you know, I hearken back often to that September 20th, 2001 speech that President Bush made uh, to the American people uh, through a joint session of of Congress there. And, you know, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he said, we're we're in a new era. This is a new type of warfare. This is, you know, he declared a global war on terrorism. And he said, we're going to have to go where they are, not wait for them to come to us. We, we have to go where they are. And, and it, it, you know, he, he told us then it, it was going to be a long, long process. There was no, you know, all of this nonsense about exit strategies and end games. He never, you know, he, he never suggested for a moment that this was going to be anything but long and difficult and absolutely necessary if we want to eradicate from the face of the earth this type of behavior. Now, you know, you're never going to eradicate this completely, but never have we ever had to deal with organized groups uh, with, you know, strength of armies as far as numbers, that are organized by, aided by, hidden by uh, legitimate governments that we that we diplomatically engage. So to suggest that we don't know where ISIS is, where they operate, where they train, is ridiculous. And I, and I don't know that anybody is saying that. You know. Um, you know, this, 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 our current president has shown some resolve relevant to drone strikes and, and taking out ISIS leadership, the, the ISIS leadership structure, certainly. He has shown some resolve in that. But the, the attacks are much more frequent now. Um, you know, thank God there hasn't, well, I can't say that. We have the situation out in California uh, a month or so ago. But for the most part, you know, we haven't seen this kind of thing—you know, mass bombings, coordinated attacks, different parts of the city, people machine gunned down in the street. You know, we haven't seen that yet. Um, but the the principle that we have abandoned, or or at least the the idea that we have abandoned—and I get it, I understand why—is that we we have we have sort of taken our foot off the throat of these bastards. Uh, and have allowed them to fall back, regroup, reconstitute, and the product of that is this ISIS bunch. You know, Al-Qaeda was all but decimated. The Taliban was gone. We had just destroyed those groups. And, there, you know, and, and, and anyone who, who, any government that, that harbored or aided them, we're no, we're no longer doing so but through a series of, of sort of diplomatic initiatives and, and military decisions not only made by this president uh, Bush 41 you know he sort of backslid a bit in later, in later in his presidency but that's you know sort of what has conspired to allow this to, to, to escalate to the point that it is so I say all that to say this if we're going to Look, and it, let me make this point also. Clearly, obviously, this plays right into to the Donald Trump playbook. I mean, this is tailored for him. You know, I'm sure he's as, as outraged and upset as the rest of us are about this kind of thing. But the reality is, this plays into his narrative perfectly. This is going to gin up Obviously, fear, anxiety. The whole refugee uh, situation is going to be is going to. F- it hasn't really died down, but that debate is going to fire back up again. Um, you know, it, it, <clears throat> so the knee jerk reaction is going to be, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see his his poll numbers climb and he he, he win bigger victories in, in in these primaries as a result of this because nothing. You know, nothing drives action like fear. And this this certainly instills fear in people. Uh, and, you know, a guy like Donald Trump is tailor-made, uh, at least his rhetoric is, for embracing that fear, exploiting that fear, and using that fear to his advantage. And, and, and that's what he's going to do. And that's what he will do. Um, but the, the answer to this is to not close the hatch Lock the doors and and think that because you're disallowing a particular group from coming into the United States that you're going to stop this. That is ridiculous. Uh, you know you you have to go to where these people are and you have to kill them where they are. That's how you deal with this. You you kill them where they are. You destroy their ability to make war. You cut off their money. I mean, it's a multi-pronged sort of attack. But you can't, you know, pull a rock in over your head and say, you know, we're going to isolate from the rest of the world, and uh, this thing is just not going to be our problem anymore. That is ridiculous. Um, And I want to, I want to let you, I want to remind you about something. You know. Anybody who listens to this show or, or knows me knows that I'm no fan of, of President Obama. Uh, I, 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 I disagree with him almost categorically on everything. Um, his political governing philosophy is, is antithetical to mine, um, but he does sort of take a, a beating uh, in certain circles um, about his s- seemingly painstaking efforts he makes to differentiate Muslims from radical extremists Um, but I want to let you listen to President Bush 41 on September 20th 2001 just very briefly
1: I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world we respect your faith It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. Its teachings are good and peaceful. And those who commit evil in the name of Allah blaspheme the name of Allah. The terrorists... The terrorists are traitors to their own faith trying, in effect, to hijack Islam itself. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated.
0: Okay, so, I mean, that reminds you of, of President Bush was making sort of the same argument that this president makes relevant to sort of trying to distinguish uh, for a lot of different reasons uh, Muslims Mm -hmm. and radical Islamic jihadists. And I don't think Mr. Trump's idea of locking the borders down and uh, denying Muslims entrance into the United States would be something that Bush forty one, or obviously President Obama, would embrace, but certainly Bush forty one, based on his rhetoric, even in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven, even in the in that emotion filled, hyper vigilant, you know, environment, even then, the president of the United States was unwilling to throw the entire Muslim faith under the sort of bus. So I think that's important to note. Um, you know, if, if anything, I try to be consistent and fair, and I think it's fair to point that out. Um, so I just wanted to, to play that briefly. And I like that bit at the end, too, which which sort of dovetailed back into my point about, you know, the global reach. We're going to find you where you are. and We're coming for you, and we're going to kill you. Uh we have obviously um sort of lost that mantra um over the years. It's watered down and, and you know, we we've established withdrawal timetables and in fact have withdrawn and draw down here and draw down there and you know, a lot of reasons for that. But at any rate, um just wanted to uh let you hear hear that little little snippet there. And I'm not gonna rant and rave about the political race tonight. Um I mean you that's just everywhere. Um, you know, Donald Trump is, is rolling along. He's, uh, he's, he's ahead in the delegate count. I think Kasich's remaining in, in, in the race is going to probably cause this thing to be uh, decided. You know, I, I don't believe, well, let me just say, I don't believe Trump's going to have the requisite number of delegates uh, going into the convention to secure the nomination. I think this thing's going to be an ugly, ugly floor fight and may, may end in a, in a divided convention. Um, a broker convention, perhaps possibly. I mean, it's just going to be it's just going to be ugly um, and untenable, and probably cost Republicans the election, and may cost Republicans more than just the presidential election. Uh, and it may take many, many, many years to sort of repair the brand name. Um, I hope that doesn't happen, but it's certainly uh, there's a storm brewing with all of the right ingredients for that to to hit. So. We'll just have to watch it, and uh, that's just all I'm going to say about that tonight. But I will say one thing more, though. You know, I had the opportunity this past weekend. As I've stated to you many times on this program, I'm I'm actively involved in in local Republican Party ticks here where I live, and uh, I was uh, nominated and elected to chair the uh, the local Republican Party convention, the county convention this past weekend, and uh, there was a sort of a a, a unscientific uh, poll taken. But it was kind of a neat thing. One of our one of our state senators was president. And he had a, uh, a little application on his phone where you could dial in. He gave you a number to text to, and once you text into it, there were several questions you were, that were posed to you, and one of the questions was uh, favorability ratings of Donald Trump and, and, and uh, uh, Ted Cruz and John Kasich, and much to my um, delight, Donald Trump was just shellacked Um so that that sort of renewed a little bit of my faith in my local uh, Fayette County uh, party. I, I thought for certain that uh, the the party was in the tank for uh, for Mr. Trump, but they certainly were not. He was defeated. His favorability ratings were in the toilet. At, you know, twenty one percent or something. In uh, in a head to head contest when him and, and Cruz, Cruz just destroyed him in this little uh, online poll or this little uh, text messaging poll thing. So that was uh, that was heartening. I was I was happy to see you. happy to see that. And now for a brand new feature, everybody. We'll call this Tales from the Courtroom. Those stories that only a courtroom trial attorney practicing criminal law, be it a prosecutor or a defense attorney, are going to see and rarely talk about. Just sort of those little things that, uh, you know, you, you see and uh, file them under the category of you can't make this stuff up. In this episode, I'm, I'm going to call this episode... What do this here do now? I'm not going to name names, courtrooms, jurisdictions, judges, or anything else, but let me just tell you that recently I had a client who was charged with a criminal offense, and it was a very serious criminal offense, and he was looking at, uh, he had been known, uh, he had been been recidivized. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with that, in Georgia we have these recidivist statutes, and if you are charged under one of these recidivist, well, you're not charged under these recidivist statutes, but you are recidivized by the the uh, district attorney's office, and what that means is if you have had, uh, say, you're charged with a particular crime, if you have had a, a subsequent or a second or third offense of that same particular felon, a felony offense, you could be subject to enhanced punishments. So and when I say enhanced, that's a general euphemism for you're going to get your ass handed to you. Um, so I had a gentleman that was in such a predicament. Uh, he had been charged with a felony, and he had uh, several of these felonies uh, on his criminal history very recently, as a matter of fact. Now, this gentleman was, uh, you know, he didn't look, he was only about 58 years old, but he looked like he was about 78, um, had a head, he kind of reminded me of a milk dud with a pair of glasses on. He he had that shaped head, bald, uh, very nice fella, but I had a hard time making him understand what he was facing. Uh, and in his particular circumstance, his uh, his uh, uh, possible range, uh, had he been convicted or pled under what he was charged with, he was looking at a ten year mandatory minimum sentence and a possible range up to forty years and or life imprisonment uh, for something that was not that serious. Uh, that's sort of the uh, the insidiousness of these recidivism statutes. Uh, but I'll save that for another day. But at any rate, uh, after. Uh, literally hours of wrangling with the di- district attorney, finally came up with a resolution where we were able to uh, amend the charge to something that did, did not contemplate these mandatory minimums for this fellow. And uh, he wanted to go to trial, of course, like they all think they do. Um, thought he could win the day with his, with his argument of, he, he had the classic, wasn't none of me defense which I've seen many, many times, and uh, I've never tried it, but I've seen it fail uh, <laughs> just about every time it's tried. So he had the, it wasn't out of my defense, and him and I are going back and forth, and I'm literally trying to save this man's life because I know what's going to happen if he has his way and we go to trial. So I finally get him sat down. He's looking at his material, and he says uh, to me, he says, oh, well, uh, let me, let me, da, 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 I, I don't believe I've ever seen my discovery. I said, well, sir, uh, I've got it right here. Let's 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 look at it, shall we? So he's looking at this stuff, and I know that he's not comprehending uh, about a third of what he's looking at because most of it is just jargon and nonsense and scribblings and things that you know seasoned defense attorneys can flip through and see and uh, decipher very quickly. And, of course, I've had a a conversation with him several times about what was in his discovery package, what was good, what was bad, and what was terrible. But as he's going through this, he's flipping through it very uh, judiciously like he's actually reading and comprehending all of this, and he looks up at me with his one good eye, sort of a bug eye, sort of looking all around. It's hard to tell who he's looking at. But he looks up at me and he says, what what, what, what what does this right here do? What do this do? Pointing at the recidivism language. I said, Well, that well, I'll tell you what that do. That uh put your ass in prison for about forty years. And he looks over at me with his one good eye, he says, That's what that do? I said, That's what that do. He says, Let's don't do that. <laughs> I said, No, we're not gonna do that. Why don't you do what I'm telling you to do? So long story short, or short story long probably, he ended up uh, taking my advice and took a plea deal and took substantially less time than that. As a matter of fact, he'll probably be out in a couple of brave seasons. Uh, he may even be here for when the Super Bowl comes to town, if in fact it does come to town because it's in jeopardy because of all of this riffra nonsense we've got going on here in Atlanta. Um, and again, we'll save that for another for another show and another topic. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Things My Granddaddy Said, Everybody. And listen, I was remiss at the top of the show. I forgot to mention our sponsor dog on it. As you know, we are now sponsored by the O'Hagan Law Firm. Mike O'Hagan is a attorney practicing family law and criminal law. Mike and his team of legal professionals are standing by to help you with all your family law or criminal law matters. He'll travel to just about any place in Georgia and may even go outside the state and um, You can reach Mike at 404-403-9711, the Michael J. O'Hagan Law Firm. Professional, committed, courteous, and service-oriented. Seriously, give them a call. He is a a fantastic attorney, and uh, you can tell them you heard about him on Things My Granddaddy Said. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for us. As always, if you want to contact us, you can reach us at David dot stutter gmail at gmail.com if you have ideas for show topics guests you want to hear about or anything else we'd love to get your feedback uh just drop us a line at that email address you can reach us at 404-217-5076 if you have a suggestion for a guest or if you want to be a guest on the show give me a call we'll talk about it and i'll see if we can get together and, and work it out if you've got something interesting that you think people would like to hear about Give me a call and let's talk about it. I was going to have a guest on this week, uh, a family law uh, person who was going to come in and do a, a legal clinic on divorce law, but she had an emergency at the last minute had to cancel, so we'll try to get her back in next month uh, or perhaps even next week to do a legal clinic as quickly as we can. But again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, keep listening to us. We're on Facebook. We're available on iTunes. Just search David Stutters Podcast or Things My Granddaddy Said. Either way, it pops right up find us on facebook at things my granddaddy said please please like listen and share we're trying to get the word out about the show and uh the more feedback we get and the more likes and shares we get the uh the more enthusiastic we are about keeping this going so thanks very much for tuning in and we will be back with you next tuesday for a all-new thrill-packed in uh episode of things my granddaddy said good evening everybody